Nordstrom, uh, Nordstrom sells at the department store. Uh, I don't know if, if, do they have Nordstrom here in Canada? Okay, well, it's like this fancy schmancy department store. They have them in the States. They do, Beth says, they, they do have them in Canada. They do. So Nordstrom is a department store, and they sell what they call dirty jeans. Um, and you can go get yourself a pair of dirty jeans at Nordstrom for only $425. I think I've got a picture. You can't see it, but basically it's like, supposed to look like there's mud caked all over your jeans and it's fake mud and it's kind of like imprinted on there and stained on there and you buy them like this for $425 and on their website here's what it says it says embody rugged Americana workwear that's seen some hard-working action with a crackled caked on muddy coating that shows you're not afraid to get down and dirty so for $425 you can pay to look like you actually work hard is basically what you can get at Nordstrom, which is interesting. Okay, all right, there we go. Mike is selling a pair for $200. It kind of, you know, it's funny. Um, we tend to, we live in a culture where we like to put on a front. Um, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and for those of you who maybe have spent some time in Houston, Texas, uh, the hip-hop culture is really big down there, and um, there was, there was uh, basically a... Um, a label that came up called in a style of hip hop called Swisha House. Anybody know Swisha House? A couple people do. So, anyways, uh, but basically they made popular big rims on your cars, right? And so it was a common thing to see like a 1991 Chevy Cavalier with the paint peeling off with like 22 inch spinning rims on it that were worth about three times as much as the actual car. Like no joke, like this was a common occurrence to see it rolling down the street and they'd probably have a sound system that was worth more than the car uh, in it as well. And we live in a society that's perfected the art of putting on a front, of projecting this image of who we want other people to think that we are, okay? But we're not the only ones. There's nothing new under the sun, okay? This isn't some new thing that we just started doing in the West over the past couple of decades. This has been happening ever since, really, the beginning of humanity. We're in uh, Mark chapter 11 today. We're continuing our series in the book of Mark. I believe this is week 11 in the book of Mark. And uh, what we're going to see this week, this is kind of like the climax to the storyline of Mark. So if you'll remember, uh, the first half of the book of Mark, uh, we were looking at Jesus, and Jesus was kind of revealing who he is to the disciples. And the second half, Jesus is revealing what he came to do and what that means for you if you want to be his disciple. And if you'll recall, uh, after the second half of Mark, Jesus started telling his disciples, hey, the Son of Man is going to be rejected by the religious leaders. He's going to suffer. He's going to be crucified. And on the third day, he's going to rise. And he was heading straight for Jerusalem. Well, today, we're going to arrive in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to show up in Jerusalem. And what happens is we're not going to be able to get to this point part of the text, but in Mark 11, 1 to 11, I'm just going to kind of summarize real quick. Jesus, he comes to the edge of Jerusalem, he tells the disciples to go in and get a donkey, and he saddles up a donkey, they throw some cloaks on it, and he starts riding into Jerusalem, and he's got like a welcome party, and people are throwing palm branches down, and they're throwing their cloaks down in front of him, kind of rolling the red carpet out for Jesus and the king, right, the Messiah, starts entering Jerusalem, although it's a rather odd way for a king to enter into a city. Kings did not ride donkeys, just in case you didn't know that. Uh, kings, that was not a typical thing for a king to do. This was an odd thing for a king to do. So Jesus 
enters into Jerusalem. Now, the week that he's coming to Jerusalem is significant. It's Passover week, okay? Passover was the celebration of the exodus from Egypt. So those of you who've been with us for a few months now remember the, st- the series from the book of Exodus we did. And the 10th plague, when the people of Israel were enslaved to Egypt, Pharaoh refused to let them go. God did plague after plague after plague, and Pharaoh was stubborn. And finally, God sent a plague to strike down the firstborn of the Egyptians. And he told the people of Israel, he said, I want you to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over your home. I'll pass over. I will spare the firstborn of Israel because I've decided to set my love on you as my people. Not because of anything you've done, not because you're better than Egyptians, but because of my own purposes. And so this Passover celebration is commemorating that. It's remembering God's love and God's faithfulness to Israel. So this is a big deal, all right? The population of Jerusalem in Passover week would swell to close to 10 times the normal size. So you'd have around 2.5 million people in Jerusalem for Passover week. There would be close to 250,000 lambs that are going to be slaughtered during this one week that are going to be sacrificed for the sins of people. Jerusalem was a large, ornate city. It was built around the temple. The temple was the pride and joy. Uh, It wasn't actually even completely finished until about 66 uh, or 64 AD, and ironically if, and sadly, if you know the story, it was only six years after that that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So they finish it, you know, they've been working on it for like over a century, and then they finally finish it, and six years later it gets destroyed by the Romans. But that's another story for another day. For our purposes today, it's about, right now it's about 33 AD, and the temple is, even though it's still being worked on, it's magnificent, it's huge, it's beautiful. So there's this incredible place of worship, and that's where Jesus is going to enter into, right? Now, Jesus' entrance entrance into Jerusalem creates some excitement initially, but that excitement's going to be short-lived. Because Jesus, we're about to see, he's going to go to the temple, he's going to go to church, Jesus is going to show up for church, and he's not going to like what he finds at church. He's not going to like what he finds. Are you one of those people that doesn't like hypocrites? I got some good news for you, because neither does Jesus. Jesus can't stand hypocrites. Ironically, many people reject Jesus and they reject the body of Christ, the church, because of hypocrisy. Um, But Jesus is probably, I would say, if anybody can't stand hypocrisy, it's Jesus. And I think you're going to come away agreeing with that after after we read our passage today. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I'm glad you're here. And I hope that you'll approach the Bible with an open mind and see the real Jesus uh, this morning. And for the rest of us, I don't want you to be so quick to condemn hypocrites, because we need to examine ourselves this morning. It's it's much more rampant than we realize, hypocrisy. And we, as religious people, are the ones that are most susceptible, okay? Non-religious people can't be hypocrites, (laughs) because they don't claim to be religious, right? As religious people, we are the most susceptible to being hypocrites, so we need to pay attention this morning. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at things that make Jesus angry. That's the title of the sermon. Things that make Jesus angry. And towards the end, we're going to look at Jesus' solution to avoid falling into these pitfalls. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. And we're going to start in verse 12. There's Bibles on the tables in front of you if you don't have one. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. Mark 11, we'll start in verse 12. Here's what happens. 
On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may you never eat, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay, so Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem with his disciples. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree off in the distance. It's got some leaves on it. Now, fig trees, if you don't know, typically whenever leaves blossom, the figs will also blossom at the same time. So if you see a fig tree and you see leaves on it, one would expect to find figs on this fig tree. So Jesus sees this fig tree. He walks up. There's no figs on it. And Jesus is like, man, curse you, fig tree. May you never bear fruit again. And he curses this fig tree. Now, what in the world is going on here? Like, this does not seem like the Jesus we know and love, does it? Like, is Jesus just tired from the long journey to Jerusalem? Is he hangry? You know, the, you know you're hungry and angry. Ever, anybody know hangry, right? Is Jesus hangry? Is he just finally fed up because the disciples are frustrating him because they just don't seem to get it? And fi- so he just decides to take it out on this poor, innocent fig tree? No, there's a method to the madness, right? Jesus isn't doing this out of frustration or out of anger at the fig tree. So the next time you go into your refrigerator and there's no food in there, don't curse your fridge. Like, may you never cool food again. Don't do that. That's not the point of this passage. See, the fig tree in the Old Testament actually was symbolic of Israel, of the people of God, okay? Uh, So for example, Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 13 says this. It says, when I would gather them that, that's Israel, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. That's just one example. There's several texts in the Old Testament that talk about Israel as this fig tree that's supposed to bear fruit. All right? So, like I said, when fig trees blossom, the leaves and the figs are supposed to blossom at the same time, but Jesus finds that there are no figs on this tree. And Jesus found the same thing in Jerusalem. You see, what he's doing to this fig tree, it's prophetic. And it's symbolic of what we're going to see him do a few verses later. See, when Jesus came to Jerusalem, the same thing happened. There was a lot of religious activity. There were leaves on the tree, but there was no fruit to be found. There was no spiritual devotion to God. Now today, in the same way, we should expect that if we see somebody who claims to be a follower of Jesus, that we should find fruit when we go and we take a closer look at their lives. Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous preacher in England in the 1800s, preached a sermon on this passage entitled, Nothing But Leaves. It was a sermon about people who appear godly, but upon closer inspection, there's nothing but leaves in their life. Like the fig tree, many people look good from afar, but they're far from good. They look good from afar, but they're far from good. So, you know, Jesus, he saw this tree from a distance, and he moved in to take a closer look. Have anybody ever heard the term putting lipstick on a pig? No? So putting lipstick on a pig is whenever you try to dress something up on the outside cosmetically without changing it. I mean, think about it. You put lipstick on a pig, and you go... Look how pretty it is. Well, it's still a pig, right? I mean, you can put as much makeup on that pig as you want, but it's still a pig, and I'm not going to kiss it, right? You're putting lipstick on a pig, 
Whenever we try to cosmetically dress something up on the outside without changing the inside, that's what we're doing. And that's what uh, the Jews and the religious people were doing in Jesus' day. Jesus, in Matthew 23, this is what he has to say about the religious leaders. Like, these are the people that are teaching. These are, the, these are like the pastors, right, of their day. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. First clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean. Right? So if you got this, you know, coffee cup that you find in your garage, and it's got a bunch of dust inside of it, and you polish up the outside, but you never bother to wash out the inside, and then you hand it to me, and, you know, you put some water in it and go, here you go, I'm going to be like, that's gross, man. Like, clean the inside of that cup. I don't want to drink out of that cup. I don't care if the outside's dirty. I want the inside to be clean. That's what's going into my mouth, right? Hypocrites come in all shapes and sizes. It's not just religious people. It's not just priests or, you know, the TV preachers that you see, you know, when you flip through one of those crazy channels and they're on there telling you to donate, you know, $22 and God will bless you this year and stuff like that. Those aren't the only types of hypocrites that we see. Some, a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing and does another. John Piper puts it like this. He says, hypocrites don't just tell lies, they are lies. Think about that. Hypocrites don't just tell lies, they are lies. You see, they have to project this image, right? They, this outside persona has to be kept up, so they have to live this lie to try to keep people believing that, that they are something that they're really not on the inside. It's exhausting work being a hypocrite. It's exhausting work trying to keep up this outside persona while inside we're rotting. Hypocrisy deceives us into thinking that if other people see us as good, then it must be true. It believes the lie that our reputation is who we really are. But friends, can I tell you something? Our, your reputation is not who you really are. What other people think about you is not who you really are. Who you really are is who you are before God. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, there's no leaves to hide behind when it comes to God. God, doesn't, God sees through this outside veneer that we have, and he sees through to the core of who we are, to our motives, to our heart, to the why. When it comes to what we do, he's not concerned as much about what you do as why you're doing what you're doing. Jesus says we must be made new from the inside out. In John chapter 3, verse 3, he says that anyone who wants to enter the kingdom, they must be born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. You must become a new creation. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 also says that we are ambassadors for Christ. So not only do we become a new creation, but we become an ambassador, a representative of Jesus. So we can't be an ambassador without being made new. A representative of Jesus that's not made new is a hypocrite. You can't say, I'm a Christian. That word Christian means little Christ, by the way. You can't say, I'm a Christian, I represent Jesus and not be made new from the inside out. So we've got to be made new. So I ask you, what's behind the leaves in your life? 
it's easy to sit in a sermon like this and think about all the other people that this applies to. But what about you? What would happen if Jesus came and gave you an up-close and personal examination like he did to the fig tree? Would he find purity in your motives? Do you put on a Christian front or is it real? Would he find integrity? Do you do the same thing when nobody's looking as you do when other people are around? Are you the same person on Wednesday afternoon as you are on Sunday morning? Would he find the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. What would he find if he took a closer examination of your life? Here's a question that will make you squirm in your seat. Could we play a movie of your thought life over the past week next Sunday morning at church? Would you be comfortable with that? That's what will reveal what's inside. There's no leaves to hide behind on Judgment Day. And here's the point, guys. There's no, like, we should be addressing this now in our lives and not waiting till Jesus comes back, okay? Look, Jesus comes, he, Jesus comes first on a, on a donkey as a humble Savior in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. He's not coming back on a donkey. He's coming back on a white horse, and he's coming back as the righteous judge. You're not going to want to meet him as your righteous judge when he comes back the second time. You want to meet him as your humble Savior right now. So we've got to deal with this now. Romans 2, 16 says, The day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. So, I mean, we can keep who we really are as a secret. We can live this double life right now. And we can fool a lot of people, but we can't fool God. And ultimately, one day, all those things are going to be exposed for everybody to see. And we can only keep it a secret for so long. So like I said, the cursing of the fig tree is a prophetic action. It's pointing forward to what Jesus is going to do next. So not only do fruitless works make Jesus angry, we're going to see that false worship also makes Jesus angry. Look at verses 15 to 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So if you wondered, ever wondered what would happen if Jesus came to church, well, this is kind of an example. This is Jesus coming to church, right? And he didn't like what he, what he saw. Now, this is not the Jesus that we most often see. It's not the Jesus that we're used to, is it? The Jesus we usually see has a halo. He's super white with long flowing hair. He loves to frolic in green pastures and snuggle with lambs, right? It's kind of like that Jesus right there. Like, he's just like, hey guys, how you doing, right? Like, that's the Jesus that we're used to seeing, that we see portrayed. But that's an insufficient picture of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is gentle. He's lowly of heart. He's the good shepherd. But Jesus is also holy. Jesus is also righteous. Jesus also gets angry at hypocrisy. Some people say that this is evidence. They'll point to this passage and say, see, Jesus sinned. 
Jesus wasn't perfect. This is evidence right here of Jesus sinning. But this isn't Jesus sinning. This is not out of control rage. This is called righteous indignation. All right. This is a righteous anger. Uh, not to mention Jesus has every right to go into the temple because the temple, he's the son of God. So what he says goes, right? Just like you have, if you're a parent, you have what you say goes in your house, right? It's the same way with Jesus. This is Jesus's house. And so what he says goes in his house. Let, let's, maybe if we kind of dig a little bit deeper into why Jesus was so upset, maybe you'll understand his reaction here, okay? Here's some things that were going on. Number one, Jesus was upset at the injustice that was happening. So we see there, that he went and he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So pigeons or doves uh, were uh, set as, in the book of Leviticus, uh, it makes a provision for families that were too poor. Every family was supposed to sacrifice a lamb on Passover. But families that were too poor to afford a lamb or that did not have a lamb to sacrifice, a provision was made and they could sacrifice two pigeons or two doves, which were much, much cheaper, okay? And they had to get these doves, they had, they had to be ceremonially, ceremonially clean, and so they would buy them and uh, they would go to Jerusalem and get them. So what these, these, these merchants, they knew that, they knew that these people were going to have to buy these pigeons and so they'd set up shop right outside the temple, and they'd mark the prices up. Some scholars say up to 16 times the normal price for a pigeon. And so they're selling these sacrifices that they know that the poor are going to have to buy if they want to get into God's house, if they want to worship God. And they're selling them in, in, in exorbitant amounts. So they're exploiting the poor, and they're use, using a celebration that's supposed to be about God for turning a profit. The money changers, the money changers were there because there were a lot of people coming from out of town. There were foreigners. There were Gentiles that were coming. And to give in the temple, you had to have a drachma, okay, which was like a currency. So you guys that have come up from the States here, there are some places that will take American cash, but they don't give you the exchange rate. So it's best to go to a currency exchange place at an airport or at the mall. So you got to come and some places, luckily, they'll let you do it for free. There's no exchange rates. Well, not these guys. These jerks were charging people incredibly high exchange rates to come. They were taking advantage of the foreigner. They were taking advantage of the Gentile that was coming in. Now, this is completely opposed to God's heart. Just listen to a couple of verses in the Old Testament of how God says he wants his people to treat the poor and the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. Leviticus 19.34, he says, You are to love the foreigner as yourself, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 10.18, God sa uh, says that he ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So what God's people here are doing, what, what religious people are doing in this passage, is they're exhibiting the exact opposite of God's heart. There's injustice. Secondly, worse than that, is they're keeping people from God. All of this, all of this merchant stuff, all this commotion is taking place in the outer court. And you know what the outer court was reserved for? The outer court was the place where the Gentiles were supposed to be able to come and worship and pray to God. So all of this is taking place in the outer court, but because of all the chaos, the Gentiles couldn't even come to God's house and seek God and pray. Because of all this commotion, because of all this 
you know, garbage that's taking place for selfish gain, Gentiles can't even come into God's presence and meet with God. And so Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56. I want to read you the whole quote in its context. Listen to what he says, what God says in Isaiah 56. It says, And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, that's Jerusalem, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You see why Jesus is so upset? What's God's purpose? God's purpose is to gather people from every tribe and tongue and nation. God wants to gather the outcasts. He wants to gather those that nobody else is seeking. The poor. Those who don't think that they belong. The foreigners. And that's exactly what God's very people are preventing from happening right here in this passage. William Lane, a commentator on this passage, says, Just as the leaves concealed that there was no fruit on the fig tree, the beauty of the temple concealed that Israel was not bearing the fruit of righteousness. The beauty of the temple couldn't make up for the rottenness that was happening inside that temple. So what about us? You know, we can make church seem inviting and we can put on a great show, but does our worship reflect the heart of God? God's desire is to gather the outcast and the outsider. We see this all over the Bible. I'll read you another passage. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says that it shall come to pass that in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. This wasn't happening right here in the temple, in our passage. And that grieved and it angered Jesus. Is it happening here? It's our desire that it would. That's why we try to keep things simple at Fellowship Oshawa. We try to remove every single obstacle that would keep Anybody from coming and meeting with God. Two of our values as a church, our values are right up there on that little banner. Two of our values are selfless hospitality and people far from God. We value selfless hospitality. We want to demonstrate it in everything that we do. We want to be a place that welcomes people from every walk of life, from every nation, from every background, no matter where you are at. We want you to feel like this is a place where you can come and encounter God and meet God and worship Him, and pray to Him. And we, we value people that are far from God. Ultimately, it's our desire that people all across this city, from every walk of life, would come to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for their sins, and He wants to change them and make them a new person and give them eternal life if they'll turn and believe in Him. We want that offer of salvation to be given to every single person in the city. That's our, that's our vision, because we love people. And we want people to know God. 
and to be saved. So rather than put efforts towards an outward image, making things look good cosmetically, we want to welcome people. And we want people to know that they're loved here. So I guess um, I'll ask you guys a question, and I actually want feedback on this. Let's have, a little, let's have a little chat. Do we do this well as a church? Does our church reflect Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 and 3? Can you throw that verse back up there, Mark? Does our church reflect Isaiah 2, 2 and 3? What could we do better? What do you guys think? Do we do this well? Do we show selfless hospitality? Do we value people that are far from God? This is the audience participation portion of the morning. Yeah? Yeah, we try. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. What are some of those ways of improvement? Anybody have anything? That's good. I think selfless hospitality definitely reflects opening your life to other people. I think it means being vulnerable about the struggles you're having, right? And uh, also being open and letting people know that you're a safe person that they can come to and talk about anything, right? Like anything that you might be going through, like they feel safe to come to you and talk to you. And, you know, they're not going to be like, you know, shunned or judged or, you know, whatever. And like, you know, looked down upon. Um, I I definitely think that reflects selfless hospitality. you know, opening up our, lot, our our homes to each other even, you know, like hanging out outside of, you know, organized functions, uh, things like that I think are important, reaching out to others and inviting them into our home, into our lives. Anybody else have anything? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely, for sure. Good stuff. Um, so we talked about us. We talked about what about us, what we can do better. But what about you? 
What about you? Do you do this well? Do you welcome others into your life? Do you exhibit selfless hospitality? Do you value people that are far from God in your life? You know, the, the ch- I just want to point out the church, the church building today, like a place that we meet in, it's not the same as the temple here in this story, okay? So in the Old Testament, the temple was where God's presence dwelt. Today, the temple is you, <laughs> okay? Says that 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So Peter talks about, he says that each of us, if you're, if you're a Christian, then you are like a living stone being built together into this house and Jesus is the cornerstone of the house. So Jesus is like the foundation stone of the church and then each one of us are individual stones that are being put together in unity and we're being built up together as the church, okay? The church is not a building, right? The church is people. So um, I'll just ask you, are you more like the merchants that Jesus drove out that day? Are you more concerned with what you can get than what you can give? Is your main desire to point others to God, or do you keep people from God by the example that you set? Now, here's the trouble for all of us. None of our motives are 100% pure all of the time, are they? None of us. No matter how hard we try, sometimes we produce fruitless works, and sometimes we produce false worship, don't we? Our worship doesn't always come from a pure heart. So does that mean that we're in big trouble as Christians? Like, does that mean that Jesus is going to come chase after me with a whip? Because my works are sometimes fruitless and my worship is false? I think Peter might have thought so. Look at, the, look at the next verses, verses 20 and 21. Look what happens. So they go home from the temple, they go, or they go to Bethany where they're staying, and then they're going back to the temple the next morning, and they're passing by. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree, and it was withered. It was withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So they're shocked. In less than 24 hours, this tree is just withered to the roots. And I have to wonder if Peter may have caught that, that imagery of the fig tree in Jerusalem. I wonder if Peter was alarmed and he caught that reference. And, and if he did catch that reference that the fig tree was rep- representing Jerusalem, I wonder if he was alarmed at what that might have meant for Israel, God's people. Maybe he was thinking to himself, does this mean that God is going to destroy or forsake his people? Does this mean that, that our, we as a people are going to be withered? I mean, if God's people, Israel, can't even get it right, then who can? It's possible for us to cosmetically change our actions, but we can't change our nature. Changing our actions without changing our nature is like stapling fruit to a dead tree and saying, look, it's bearing fruit. It's not impressive, it's pathetic, right? It's just kind of sad. So if we can't change our nature, then who can? Well, I'm glad you asked. The answer is in verses 22 to 25. Look at Jesus' answer. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone 
so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This seems like an odd response to Peter's question. All right, Peter asks Jesus, you know, about the, the, the fig tree withering, and we, you know, I was under the impression, and I think we were all under the impression that the purpose of Jesus withering the fig tree was because he was condemning the hypocrisy of the religious people of that day. And so Jesus, Peter is like, Rabbi, look, you withered the tree, and then Jesus starts talking about having faith in God and being like, hey, if you have faith in me, you can do cool stuff like that too. Is that what Jesus was saying? No, that's, that wasn't Jesus' point. Moving a mountain in Jewish culture was a metaphor for doing the impossible. And so Jesus talks about how God can do the impossible, and then he talks about how uh, then Jesus calls on us to forgive others so that God will forgive us. What Jesus is doing here is he's giving us a picture of God's heart. You see, though we cannot bear fruit in our own strength, God is both willing and able to change our nature so that we can bear fruit. God can do the impossible and make a dead tree alive. And God wants to do the impossible to make a dead tree alive. He's willing and he's able. Here's the thing, guys. Trying to impress others without having the inside renewed there's two things that are going to happen. One of two things that will happen when you try to change the outside without having the inside changed. You're either going to be judgmental because you think that you're better than other people. Or you're going to be depressed because you're going to fear that you're far worse than other people. Those are the only two outcomes. You're either going to be judgmental and not a pleasant person to be around. And kind of like a hypocrite like these people were. Or you're going to be depressed because you're going to think, oh, I'm never going to be as good as that guy. I can't pray like this person. I always struggle with this. Oh, God is not pleased with me. There's no hope for me. I might as well just give up. There's going to be one of two extremes. The easiest way to become a hypocrite is to try to please God without Jesus. It's the easiest way to become a hypocrite. The gospel has a better way. The gospel tells us that we're all on equal ground. The gospel says that God is not pleased with any sinner. And we're all sinners. But the good news is that God loves sinners so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. And Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And anyone who trusts in him will be forgiven, made new, and given eternal life. That is the only way our nature can be made new. I think Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 and 14 says it better than I could. It kind of describes what happens when we trust in Jesus. Here's what it says. It says, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Do you see how it's through faith in Jesus that our nature is made new? Do you see that in that passage? Your sinful nature 
needs to be cut away. That old nature needs to be cut away. And like moving a mountain, it's impossible for us to do that in our own strength. So this, this happens only when we trust the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. And when you do this, then you're raised to new life. You are made alive. This passage tells us exactly what happens to us when we trust in Jesus. Here's the main point of the sermon today. Okay, If you want to write down the main point, this is it. If you don't want to be a hypocrite that will stand condemned, stop trying and start trusting. If you don't want to be a hypocrite that will stand condemned, stop trying and start trusting. I want to give you three ways that you can do this practically. Okay, Three ways you can do this practically. Here's how you can stop trying and start trusting. Number one, if you have not ever fully decided to follow Jesus, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, do that today. That's like 1A. You must do that. You must be made new. You must become a new creation. If you don't become a new creation, then everything else that I'm about to say following, you can't really do it because then you'd just be trying to staple fruit to a dead tree. You've got to be made alive. You must be made alive first, okay? Here's the evidence that you've done so. You want to know what the evidence is? How you can, you know, if you're asking, how do I know? How do I know that that's happened? The evidence is that the fruit of the Spirit naturally flows out of your life. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Here's the thing, guys. Don't fake the fruit, all right? Don't fake the fruit. You've heard the term fake the funk, right? Well, don't fake the fruit. Going to church is not a fruit of the Spirit, Goodness and kindness are fruits of the Spirit. So we go to church not because that's a fruit of the Spirit. We go to church because we want to show kindness to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and we want goodness to flow out of our lives. We enjoy fellowshipping with other people. Smiling is not a fruit of the Spirit. Anybody can put on a, put on a fake smile. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So does your smile come from joy or is it fake? Is it a front? Is it just so that people won't ask you what's really going on in your heart? What's really going on in your life? Saying sorry isn't a fruit of the Spirit. Love is. Do you forgive from the heart out of love or do you just do it because it's the polite Canadian thing to do? Admit it, we've done it before, we all have. Don't fake the fruit. Secondly, you need to pray in faith. Jesus tells us in verse 23, 24 that even though there might be some things that are impossible in your life, like bearing fruit for God, that all things are possible with God. And he says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Are you frustrated that you can't change? Instead of, here's what we do a lot of times when we get frustrated that we can't change. We portray an image that everything's okay. We portray an image that we're doing pretty good in our Christian life. So instead of portraying an image that you have it all together, believe that God is willing and able to change you and then ask him to. And then ask other people to pray along with you. Humble yourself and actually talk to somebody about what's really going on in your life. Make yourself vulnerable and tell people, I'm struggling with this. Can you pray with me for it? If you want to actually change, you got to do that. 
Or you could just continue to pretend that everything's okay in your life and not ever confess your struggles to anybody and fake the fruit. I mean, you can do that. You'll be miserable. You'll rot on the inside. I would, I would suggest that you don't do that. I would suggest that you humble yourself. That's what the body of Christ is there for. We're here to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens. You're going to discover if you do that that you're not the only one that's struggling. You're going to be shocked at how much other people actually struggle. You're going to be shocked at how much Christian leaders, pastors, missionaries actually struggle. I mean, I was just writing down a couple of examples like A.W. Tozer, who's a, a, an incredible pastor right here in the GTA uh, back several decades ago. He had a terrible marriage. Like his marriage was not good. Jonathan Edwards, a great preacher who saw many, many people come to faith. He had slaves. Charles Spurgeon, the pastor that we talked about in England, thousands and thousands of people came to Christ under his preaching. He had debilitating depression, like, like really bad depression. Martin Luther, the dude like sparked the Reformation. He had outbursts of anger and he was basically a racist toward Jews. All these people had struggles. The difference, what made them not hypocrites that would be judged was that they didn't pretend like everything was fine in their lives. They confessed their sin and they trusted in Jesus for their righteousness. They owned the fact that they had warts and they sought to overcome those things and they sought to change. So pray in faith. Trust in Christ, pray in faith. And lastly, Jesus says, don't judge others, have mercy on them. Verse 25, he says, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you. Here's the thing, guys. People that hold on to bitterness in their hearts and refuse to forgive other people only show that they've never really accepted God's forgiveness in their lives. You aren't, you, what we've got to realize, guys, is that you are just as unworthy as the one that you don't want to forgive. You're just as unworthy of forgiveness as the person who's wronged you. So who am I, a guilty sinner, to withhold the forgiveness that God has given me to another guilty sinner? How dare I refuse to forgive someone else when I didn't deserve to be forgiven by God? You have somebody in your life that you haven't forgiven or that you've got bitterness towards. I'll just tell you this. You're never going to be free from hypocrisy and you're never going to have the joy of being forgiven if you refuse to forgive other people. So I would encourage you today, if there's somebody in your life that you haven't forgiven, go to them. Don't delay. Don't put it off. Schedule a time to meet with them, whether it's calling them after service today or go over to their house today and make it right. Well, they don't deserve it. Well, neither did you. Well, they didn't, ask, they didn't come to me and ask and apologize to me. It doesn't matter. Go and forgive them. Don't hold on to that anymore. It's just going to make you rot on the inside. The good news today, well, we must avoid fruitless works and false worship, guys. Those are the things that make Jesus angry, but the, the good news is that the very sin that makes Jesus angry is the sin that he came to die for. And Jesus, we know this, that even though he's cleansing the temple right now and he's angry at sin, the whole reason he came to Jerusalem is because he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die for that very sin that he's upset over. And he's died for your sin. 
The good news is that we don't have to try to impress God or other people. Jesus is the impressive one, and he offers you a new life. So if you don't want to be a hypocrite that will stand condemned, then stop trying and start trusting this morning.